Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, JJ Peterson, and our correspondent, Allison Trowbridge. Yay! Hello! Allison, welcome. Thank you so much, Don. We are so glad to have you. I am so glad to be here. Allison and I, we've tried to figure out how long we've known each other. It's been a long time. I mean, It's pushing 10 years. I think you are about four feet tall when I met you. That's not true. just a child. (laughs) It's great to have you. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on the podcast, there are many reasons. You're the author of, how many books now? Well, you ghost wrote... I have ghostwritten books. A book or two. Yes, but my book is called 22. And that's the one with just your name on it. Yes, exactly. Just my name, no one else's. (laughs) It's the book that I wanted when I was in my early 20s and had no idea what I was doing. I still don't have really a great idea. But you know more than you did when you were 22. Exactly. I have a lot more wisdom than I did back then. How specific is the advice? It's like, don't date Ryan. It's not that specific, <laughs> but that's close. It's yeah. y- you would get some good advice like that. Okay. That's probably good advice. Well, I got rave reviews, and it still floats up on Instagram all the time. Girls love reading it. You know what? We just passed the one-year anniversary, and I was going through all of the kind of comments and notes I've received through the last year, and it, it actually made it feel real for me. Yeah. Like, just to hear the response and the impact it's made in young women's lives, it... Yeah, it was really special. It's, I mean, you know how hard it is to write a book. Yeah. It's a very, very dark, very lonely, kind of depressing <laughs> process. People only knew. People think you're sitting in the sunshine typing away on an old typewriter, and it's not quite that. But it, yeah, it's been a beautiful process. I'm super grateful for it. It's interesting that you chose that topic because you are very much entrepreneur. You come yes. from an entrepreneurial family. You've been deeply invested in sort of the business community forever. That's the side of you that I knew. Yeah. How much did you writing a book actually make you want to, because this is getting into what you're doing with your life now, recreating a kind of publishing technology industry. Because our listeners don't know about this project because you haven't made it super public yet. And I don't know how much you can actually talk yes, about. Yes, I can't say too much yet. Can but you tell can... us a little bit? Because it's fascinating and it'll unravel as the years go yes, on here exactly. on the Story Brand Podcast. Yes, keep tuning into the podcast because you'll hear more. But I am starting a company in the publishing space. And a big part of it was, you know, my years both ghostwriting a book and then writing my own book. And You saw a better way for this to be done. I did. And a lot of frustrated authors. And it's an industry that I care so deeply about. I actually come from the anti-trafficking social movement industry, and I saw that entire social movement be built on the back of books. I believe it's still the most powerful medium that we have in the world today. Hmm. You know, your entire career started yeah, with no, that's true. a book. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think that publishing is dead or books are dead, and yet the best conversations I have over dinner are about what we're reading or, you know, my favorite movies to watch or television series are all based on books. So yeah. it's an industry that really fires me up. And you just also, I just saw pictures on Instagram because I follow you as well. Thanks for following me. Speaking of books, we're around one of my favorite libraries in the world in Oxford. Yes. I love Oxford. You went to Oxford. You've just finished your... Yes, I actually just moved back. Yeah, exactly. JJ, you you were at Oxford for a minute too, right? Yeah, I spent two summers there studying Lewis and Tolkien. And so we've had... We were just talking about before about our favorite bar, the Turf Tavern, which is my favorite pub <laughs> in all of Oxford. It's actually and, really yeah. special if anyone's visiting Oxford. It's actually, if you walk under the Bridge of Sighs, there's this like four foot wide yeah. alleyway and you make a left and wander down between buildings. And you find a little Hobbit pub. It's really like, a Hobbit it's, pub. It's like short ceiling. I feel very tall there. You and, are enormous. Yeah, you are a giant. I know. And the pudding is magical there. So oh, if, yeah. You pudding, guys talk yeah. of Oxford reminds me so much of my days at Alvin Community College. <laughs> And Nick's Tavern, <laughs> which was down the road, because you got—I mean, you got free peanuts. I don't know. Yeah. I can't. It's, I don't know. No, same. There, there are pubs with peanuts there too. Yes, <laughs> there yeah, are there, so many peanuts. So many peanuts. No, it's, in Oxford. It, we JJ and I have bonded over our shared love for Oxford. Yeah. It's, it was an incredible experience. Part of your career story, you wrote the book, and then you went off to get your MBA at Oxford, which is yeah. one of the reasons we wanted you as a correspondent because you actually sat down and explained some stuff going on in venture capital that I just thought, okay, we need this voice and this kind of wisdom on the podcast, and we'll get to that some other time. But you went There's off- like 500 different topics. Yeah. We're like so excited <laughs> for Allie to like dive in because every time I sit down, we talk about 50 billion things and I get so excited. And it's always like, who taught you that? And can we get him on the podcast? Yeah. And I was like, well, it'd be easier if Allie just interviewed 
Yeah, instead of us doing it. <laughs> she we'll actually knows them. Yeah. The thing that was fun was, so I actually had the book come out while I was doing the MBA. Not my best moment of life planning. It was a little a little intense, but the MBA itself was an incredible... You were finishing up the writing while you were actually... Oh, I would be in finals and it'd be 7 a.m. and I'm sending off final edits and then <laughs> donning my Oxford gown cape, jumping on my bike and riding in at 9 a.m. to my exams in these like big 800-year-old halls. It was... Great, but it was a lot. It was a lot. But the thing that was really fun was, so we rode our bikes everywhere. And I would often put my little earbuds in. And no joke, this was long before we ever had any conversations about me being a part of this. I would listen to the podcast on my bike ride into class uh, every morning. This podcast? This podcast. Wow. Only this podcast. I would ride my bike in and be thinking, this is a great education. And I'm not. Would joking. you say we were better than an Oxford MBA uh, on par? I, I would. I would say you can go Oxford MBA. You can go Story Brand Podcast. <laughs> I would say it's a pretty equal Somebody write comparison. That down. Somebody um, write you, that you will down. get more bang for your buck with the Story Brand Podcast. <laughs> that is true. Well, if you do the math yeah. on that, it's yeah. not saying much. Yeah. <laughs> Ali, we are just so pleased to have you. We're going to get to know you a lot more as the years go on, and I hope you're with us for a long time. You've already turned in I think eight or ten how many interviews a lot of them a lot of them and, I love doing them and they're fascinating I mean you're covering topics like blockchain which represents Bitcoin and all sorts of other Pandora's box of topics you were with the Duchess Sarah Ferguson not at Buckingham Palace but at some other where the queen grew up where the queen grew <laughs> up the building where the queen grew up. that interview is coming up and Amazing. this interview the very first interview we thought we'd just get really practical is with Steve Cockrum and it's about this notion about five voices, roughly based on some Myers-Briggs stuff. It is, yeah. But he talks about the voice that you use to lead with, the voice that your secondary voice, and the voice that you, what, do you detest it? Oh, <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, this he is has one, this one, The Guardian, and I'm he said it, and I'm like, oh, that's the one I just, it's the person for me that's always saying no, because I'm like, we can do it. Who cares the cost? Who cares the yeah. And it's the person that's like, actually, that's impossible. And I'm like, I don't understand you. <laughs> so it's it was such a joy to speak to him. And I've read the book. I love his stuff. So who is Steve and how'd you meet him? Okay, so Steve is actually one of the greatest executive coaches out there. He runs an organization called Giant Worldwide. He's written a number of books. Is that I, out of Europe? Is he there? He's based out of London, which already he sounds so much more intelligent than the three of us <laughs> just because he has a British accent. I've, I learned that very quickly. But no, I actually met Steve through my ex-boyfriend, believe it or not, which says a lot for why you should stay friends with your exes. Yeah. But when I moved to London, he's like, you have to meet this guy, Steve. He's changed my life. And so I went and I mean, it took us nine months to finally get together. Steve yeah. was like, who are you? I don't know why I'm meeting you, but you kept following up with me, sat down with me and ended up taking a day and giving me some just incredible life wow. coaching. He's been a mentor. I credit him for a big reason why I started my company because huh. he was the one that really kind of went through all this personality typing and was like, you need to go lead. And I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I was kind of bummed afterwards. And then I really sat with it and was like, I think he's right. So mm. he's someone that has made a big impact in my life professionally. And I'm just really excited to introduce our listeners to him. All right. Well, I can't wait. Congratulations on a terrific first interview. Everybody, here is Allie's conversation with Steve Cochran. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ali. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're here in London and it's, first of all, it's so fun for us to get a British accent on the show. Good. I'm delighted. <laughs> we Americans love our British accents. Did you know it's because you associate the British voice with your parents? Really? Yeah. So culturally, you don't want to see in your life that much, but you like the odd attaboy and encouragement and do you we know you do. can do it. We built a whole consulting business around how the Americans like to be manipulated. It's great. <laughs> we love Sorry, being manipulated. Helped. Liberated <laughs> yes. is the word I was looking Liberated, for. Liberated, not manipulated. You can edit that out later. Well, I am so <laughs> thrilled to have you on the show with us today. First of all, Steve has been just an incredible mentor in my own life and helped me figure out my next career steps and has been incredibly generous with his time, but is also just one of my favorite thought leaders on business and leadership and personality types. So it's I'm just overjoyed to have you on the podcast. You can come again. I love my American introductions. Thank you. Because we're really so enthusiastic. No, because you actually mean it. The Brits we are do. deeply cynical. We, we don't say nice things without cutting people down at the end. So thank you. I receive it. I appreciate it. If I was it. British, I'd be 
this is Steve. <laughs> That'd be about it. Yes, very well done. Okay, so you love personality types, which gets me so excited. <laughs> and maybe this is an American thing, but I love getting into how I am hardwired. And then I like typecasting all the people around me. You're very naughty. You're not meant to do that. I know I'm not, but I love geeking out on just understanding how we're hardwired. And maybe it's because all of my idiosyncrasies make a little bit more sense. Yeah. But obviously, I think a lot of us have grown up with Myers-Briggs and even strength finders and these different types. But what I love is that through your book, The Five Voices, you've actually gone through and simplified the Myers-Briggs because you're an expert in Myers-Briggs to you're, begin with. You're very kind. Flattery will get you Yes. I think 13 <laughs> years ago, somebody paid for me to go and study Myers-Briggs, I think as a gift to Helen, my wife. <laughs> Probably. I, I, I joke and say I've been happily married for 25 years and Helen for about 12 of them. Oh, that's mainly amazing. Mainly because I had no idea what it was like to be on the other side of me. What do you mean? Apparently, I had all kinds of tendencies to believe I was right, argue repeatedly, often ignore people I didn't think were competent, not particularly compassionate, not particularly sensitive. And uh, I would assume that silence meant people agreed with the genius of my ideas. (laughs) You mean that's not what silence means? No, it turned out it was like one of those moments where you remember the Matrix. You may be too young for that. No, I remember the Matrix. When the green letters and numbers come down and you suddenly realize that go, no wonder I've annoyed certain people or more likely why certain people have annoyed me. It's one of these most profound things when you realize that human behavior is actually ridiculously predictable. And I think for me, the ability, I think, to kind of redeem the years that I was so not necessarily a true liberator to the people I led or I was around, being able to actually take that learning and try and make it accessible. So as giant, one of our mantras was, everything we do has to be accessible to educated 13-year-olds. So I've got an easy... Because it's got to be simple that they can understand it, use it, teach their friends. And I'm a Jedi in Jungian type or Myers-Briggs. And Izzy, my 13-year-old, who's now 17, it tells you how long ago it was, says, Daddy, I love what you do with me. And I love the fact I'm an ENFP and I know what that means. But I can't teach this to my friends. So Mm. it seems to violate the principle of simplicity for Giant. So you know when you get kind of kids sort of say something deeply annoying that you know is true? It kind of sent us on a bit of a journey to go, okay, how do we take the, in many ways, the power of self-awareness? How could we make it accessible to educated children? Because what we found was the only way that things stick inside busy organizations where most leaders have attention deficit disorder, they think they know it all, they've been there before, and they're far too busy for this stuff. Voices really turned out to be a way that we can actually equip leaders and teams with a vocabulary and language, which they repeatedly say, this is the only thing we've ever done which has stuck. We still use this vocabulary and language. There's usually tears. There's usually all kinds of ahas because most people are unconsciously incompetent. Hmm. I don't know any leader who ever sets out to deeply annoy the people they work for. Um, (laughs) And I don't know any employees who come into teams going, I really hope I annoy everyone and I undermine the credibility and trust of this team. Never starts that way. But without an understanding of why people are different and how you can celebrate and empower that diversity, teams and leaders get it wrong every single day and they get frustrated, they get worn out. Same happens at home. Without clues... You can't get there. I think that's probably why, for me, Voices has become the the shorthand. You know, you've been to our home. They all use it. You know, we use it. We yes, laugh about it. Yes, it's true. His kids <laughs> literally speak in voices and personality types. I don't think I've I've been around your kids for more than 15 minutes without us getting into personalities, which is so fun because Charlie's five, right? No, she's six. She'd six. be very oh, upset I'm sorry. about I that. I do not tell her that I said that. I would be in big trouble. Charlie is six. Yes. And I mean, that is a strong-willed girl with a big personality. Helen says she's like me in a skirt with blonde hair. That's so, true. I yeah. think she is. Yeah. Okay, so on your personality typing system, why did you call it voices instead of types? Why did you choose that term? I think because one of the biggest things that happens with most psychometric instruments, people feel they've been put in a box. Mm. So I'm a duck, a badger, a bear, a blue, an ISTJ, an MBTI, whatever it might be. People tend to get a label and it's often abused So voices, what we said was that everyone has a voice with a capital V and actually said none of us are linear, none of us are simplistic. So when we created the five different voices, 
we actually said every one of you speaks all five. It's just some of them are more natural to you than others. So every one of us is a complex mix, which is way harder to understand than any tests will ever tell you. I joke mm. and say every assessment on personality always claims more than I believe is legitimate because it doesn't really do justice to the complexity of what we call nature-nurture choice. So nature is your innate wiring, your personality. You can't change that. It's part of your sort of DNA. Nurture, though, is a huge influence. It's what has influenced you growing up, your upbringing, parents, education, family, successes, failures? We've all been massively influenced by our environment yeah. and we all have choice. So whenever you're dealing with an individual, somebody may have the same personality wiring as you, but they look completely different because their life experience and their choice has been. So leaders, the problem is no one ever teaches you how to lead people. And the problem is you can't just learn the formula. You have to have tools because each of us change. People go through things in their lives. Things are going on at home. Things happen at work, whatever it might be. So learning some principles that you can use to have honest conversations, we found, is probably more powerful than trying to put someone in a box. So you have a voice. And in our vocabulary, that voice with a capital V is made up of a combination of five different voices one of which is what we call foundational and the one that really drives how you engage with the world. But the other four are all important. It's just some of them are more difficult for you to value and access than others. Mm, I love that because some of the other typing systems, it's you're this or you're not this. And I love that you can kind of access any of these. So let's go through them. Sure. So five voices. Yep. I, as pioneer, I want to start there, but maybe let's go alphabetical order. Well, I'll start with nurturers. Okay, we'll start with nurturers. The reason I love is nurturers. because each voice we say has a volume. And the quietest voice of all in any team is the nurturer. Mm. Because in some ways, the nurturer is always the champion of relationships, people, values, relational harmony. Nurturers are always thinking about how do they serve the team? How do they be the relational glue in a team? They're the only voice that takes a genuine delight in others doing better than they do. Just self-giving, they're the ones that have always got the presence, the coffees, the word of encouragement, so dedicated as professionals, so determined to be loyal team players. Yeah. And the problem with nurturers is they look in a mirror and see somebody completely different to everyone else. So what do you nur mean? The nurturers, I mean, I love them. They're some of the most dedicated, caring professionals. But they look in the mirror and they always see, well, what I can't do. Well, they always go, well, should I really be here? Is there somebody more competent than me? They almost sabotage their own influence because they almost fear getting it wrong. They fear letting the team down. They look in a mirror and they always see the 3% they can't do, not the 97% they can do. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they lean into that? I think the sensitivity to people and understanding what's going on, almost there's something hardwired in them that never wants to push themselves forward. They never seem to want to be the ones who claim, you know, the limelight, the attention. My observation with nurturers eyes, they usually need a champion mm. and they usually need someone who believes in them and champions them almost to the point of saying, I am going to sponsor your career or I am going to help you. Because if you don't create a safe environment for nurturers, you will never hear the contribution they bring. But they will save you as a team leader so much money so and true. so much time and so much pain. Because sometimes what looks good on a spreadsheet, if you ask the nurturer, how are people going to respond if we make this change? And they feel safe to give it. You'll find the nurturer will understand all of the tacit agreements, all the human history and interaction in your team, in your organization. And they'll go, if you do this... This is how people will respond. I mean, Helen, my wife, is a nurturer. I always now literally go, I'm about to send this or I'm thinking of communicating this. What do you think? Hmm. And Helen just says to me every single time, you haven't sent this, have you? <laughs> I go, what do you mean I haven't sent this? She said, well, if you said this, this is what I'd hear. Wow. And I'm going, well, that's stupid because that's not what I'm trying to say at all. Wow. She said, but that's how I would hear it. And she said, don't forget, I represent 43% of people. Wow. So if you want to learn how to empower one voice, nurture is often the barometer inside any team or culture. If your nurturers feel truly liberated and safe to bring their best, it means that you've done something pretty special as a leader because they won't usually challenge 
anyone who has a contrary opinion to them. So we always say, let the nurturers go first in teams. Oh, I like that. Give them a pass. They don't have to go first, but they'll find it much easier sometimes to bring their honest opinion if they haven't got to contradict one of the stronger, maybe more forceful voices that's already laid down. This is why I think it should go. Oh, that's good. Okay, what's the second one? So the second voice is the creative. So I'm doing it in volume. Creatives are... Again, relatively quiet. Creatives only speak when they've really got someone to say. Creatives are the most future-orientated of all the voices. They love, almost stood on tiptoes, exploring ideas, trends, patterns in technology. They're, they're the futurists who are always asking the question, what's coming next? I would say the, the creative thinks outside the box way more than any of the other voices. And in some ways can be game changers. Living in the world we are at the moment where change is happening all around us and we're dealing with things no one's ever dealt yeah, with before. Sure. The creative voice, I think, is one of those competitive advantages that so few team leaders ever truly liberate because the creative very rarely says what they mean first time. The big curse for the creative is when they speak, the first thing they say usually bears no resemblance to the gold they're trying to communicate. What do you mean? They know it's true. And anyone listening who's a creative first voice knows that moment where they've often shared an idea months before and everyone's gone, no, well, that'll never work, Ali, or whatever it may be. Yeah. And then somebody says the same thing three months later and they go, everyone goes, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> that's what I was saying the And the creative's time. going, no, I said that four months ago. And everyone's like, well, you might think you did. So... Mm understanding the gift that the creative voice is means the team and particularly the leader who define the culture i always say to creatives we'll never judge you on what you say first and if you have something to say we will take the time to get it out of you we'll mm. ask the clarifying questions and usually after about three or four questions out pops a nugget of gold which is genius and everyone goes like well, why, why don't you say that first and the creative goes well i thought i did Wow. So this constant need almost, the creative to get the genius out needs the rest of the team to help them do it. And most people over time, if creatives are misunderstood or they'll get it wrong sometimes, you can't explore the future and expect to get it right every right. time. It's so easy for teams to squash creatives, kind of to almost go, well, you were wrong last time. Why should we listen to you this time? And a safe creative usually becomes down themselves and they become less and less significant in the life of a team. I see it so often in the work we do that there is genius in the 9% of the people who speak creative as their first voice, but it's so hard to really create a safe environment for them to be able to bring their best because they very rarely say it the first time. And a lot of leaders are in a hurry. Team meetings are, you know, highly structured. Yeah. Who says what? Yeah. They open their mouth. It, what comes out is not right. And people go, well, you know, thanks very much, but shut up. That's the common experience of that first voice creative. Wow. Okay, I want to get back to that, how as a leader you can nurture these voices. But let's get to the third. So Guardian. Guardian. Guardian okay. is the third voice. And you will hear the Guardian in terms of volume. Guardians will speak. They are the champions, really, of truth, due diligence, difficult questions. They steward resources, and they love bringing order, systems, disciplines to enable the organizations and teams to run more effectively. But the Guardian is one of these classic characters that often they can be right and wrong at the same time. What do you mean? So the Guardian can often be right in the question they're asking, but wrong in the way that they ask it. So sometimes the Guardian feels like the Inquisition. It feels like an interrogation. And they've got all these questions which make everyone else feel like you don't trust us at all. I've so had that experience. Oh, my <laughs> word. I've had that experience. But I love guardians. I've realized early in my 20s, I thought guardians were just trying to tear apart every idea that I had and challenge me at every turn. And then I realized a few years in, the whole system would not run. Yeah. Like everything, the wheels would fall off if it weren't for... I mean, guardians are the most incredible project managers. Yeah. So if a guardian says to you, Steve, I know what you're asking. I will deliver it. What you know is they're a little bit like a cruise missile. They will deliver it in six months' time. Now, it may, when the pressure kicks in near the deadline, Guardians, everything 
that isn't to do with achieving the task it switched off so being nice to anybody eating sleeping <laughs> because for a guardian they've taken a commitment on behalf of the team which to fail in that delivery is to violate the very core of their competency wow. in who they are so guardians i love guardians because guardians spend my money as if it was their own yeah they're always asking is this the most shrewd is this the most cost-effective way of doing it and they love pilot projects much to the annoyance of some of the more future voices like the creators they go it looks good i can't immediately find out why it's not going to work but before we bet the farm and go all in why don't we run a pilot project kick the tires and actually really do our due diligence you know you say it's going to do this what if it only does 50 percent of revenue do we have a fallback position how are we actually making sure we don't squander all of the incredible investment that's been made from the past that allows us to be in the present. So the Guardian is always the custodian of the past. They remember all the people who sacrificed for you to be there. They honour all those, really, who sat in your seat before you got there. Yeah. They expect that, in many ways, there would be that honour culture towards those who went first. And, you know, things like when you try and move, like, the clock that's been in the office for the last 20 years... It's because for the Guardian, it reminds them of who gave the clock hmm. or the time when that's when the organization was where it is. So I would say Guardian is probably the hardest voice to play in a team because it's never popular. But it's probably, like you said, one of the most crucial voices because it will save you so much time, money and effort Yeah. because they almost always know why it won't work. But sometimes they can almost be browbeaten by some of the more charismatic voices who just go, well, it's just going to work. Trust me. I probably fall in that category. <laughs> just trust me, Steve. Yeah, God, it's going to be great. It's when you wake amazing. up in the morning, we're going to be all good. And yeah. for a guardian, that's a violation of every part of their very yeah. being. Because what they're saying is, let me bring my best to the table. Mm. Guardians really like vision. Mm. But what they want to make sure is it's safe that we're not making silly mistakes because in their mind, silly mistakes cost money and that always impacts people over time. So allowing for those of us who are the more entrepreneurial voices and the creative voices to honour the guardians in our team, I would say is probably one of the most important aspects of leadership. Most small businesses are led by entrepreneurs and by very nature, they're not guardians. Often the guardian voice is the one that they kind of despise or feel like they're always pouring cold water on the ideas. Yeah. I would say learning how to truly, truly value and truly liberate the guardian voice in teams for many small businesses is absolutely one of those must-win battles. Certainly has been for Giant in our world. The first appointment Jerry and I made was to bring a guardian into our world who has been incredible at basically bringing order, system, discipline, consistency in a way that us startup entrepreneurs think we are. But even when we're trying to be on our best behavior, things often change far too quickly. Yeah, I was going to say, those aren't others. words I associate with you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing is, it's actually realizing that yeah. when I bring my best, the team win. But if I am the only thing the team has, then we have very little chance of succeeding. But if we actually create a place of honor, so I'm one of the voices that's coming, but 82% of people speak nurture, creative, or guardian as their first voice. Oh, wow. So they're the three voices which, on average, are never truly heard, valued, and appreciated. So if you think of how your team is performing, why doesn't it work the way it should? In our kind of, you know, we run a Team 360 and the average score for the, every team we work with, I think it's been 57%. And I'm absolutely convinced the main reason for that is the vast majority of people in teams do not feel truly valued. They don't feel truly liberated. They don't feel they get to bring their best to the table every day. And for many of them, it's a deep frustration that they almost, they try for a period of time and then they just almost become resigned and go, okay, well, I'll live in the new normal. What yeah. Voices does is it actually celebrates the difference and the goal being everyone goes, I know what that voice brings. And when you've got a team going, we haven't got to nurture a first voice. How do we make sure that voice is truly heard because it represents so many people in our world? Now, you keep using this term liberated. <laughs> what do you mean by liberated? So that's pretty giant's vision for the world. You know, How yeah. do we raise up liberators to change their leadership culture in every city sector in the world. So we define a liberator as somebody who 
commits to try and calibrate what we call high support and high challenge for those they lead. Commits to speak what we call speak the truth in love. Yes. Which is to say, even if it's hard sometimes for me, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to create a culture where everyone I lead experiences opportunity to stretch themselves beyond perhaps what even sometimes they think they can bear and where we create a truly empowered culture where people don't fear failure, people feel valued for who they are and what they bring so that what we say all five foundational voices truly feel equal in the team rather than what normally happens is there usually tends to be some celebrities or people who think they're more superior. Mm. I confess I was one of those pioneers before. And what I've realized is that arrogance actually means we never got anywhere near what we could. So if I sound a little bit like an evangelist, it's more, I think, having realized how much I squashed all the quieter voices. I just assumed silence was agreement. I'd come in with my strategy and go, who disagrees? Apparently, I carried a weapon system called a grenade launcher, (laughs) and anyone who dared to challenge the genius of my strategic thinking usually got incinerated. Well, why would anybody want to challenge or share their opinion if it wasn't a safe place for that to happen? So we're always grateful to Google because they've spent about, I don't know how many million over the last couple of years, and the findings of Project Aristotle, they looked at what are the key hallmarks of every high-performing team in Google. Oh, did they? And there, I have and there not were two, seen that. Okay. Two. One was that each person in the team roughly spent the same amount of time being able to talk and share in discussion. So there's a huge correlation between every individual was able to bring their contribution and had as much airtime. And the other, interestingly, was there was psychological safety in the team, which wow. meant there was a relational trust where actually... They didn't fear failure, so a certain amount of risk-taking was accepted, and also the team were able to disagree with each other and actually believe it wasn't going to cost them something. So I think that piece of you can't have psychological trust and relational safety if you don't have effective communication. Yeah, Our just constant belief of this is you can create compliance in a team by driving alignment and execution, but you can't actually create a high-performing team if each individual doesn't actually feel their voice is truly heard, valued, and appreciated, and you as the leader create a safe environment where you actually go out of your way to create a place where those voices, which may be fourth and fifth for you, actually truly feel like they have a place and a contribution that they're entitled to bring. It's amazing what happens when everyone in the room feels they're going to be heard, that actually their contribution matters. And Voices really takes a long time trying to get you to understand the voice that you find the hardest. How do you celebrate it and how do you actually honor that voice? We call it the nemesis. So, you know, for a creative like you, the guardian is your nemesis. Yeah. Well, if you can learn to love your nemesis and actually think through how do I create an environment where they feel safe well, with me? When realizing that I need them. Of course. More than just valuing, I need them. Nothing Absolutely. I do is going to perform well. What was the statistic that you gave? It was something like 57% of teams are underperforming. So it's more, it, when we do a team 360 and we look at if 100% is optimum performance, yeah. the average score has been 57. Wow. So it's probably not possible to get to 100% because teams are full of human beings like you and me, and we're not always perfect. Not always. But I would argue that any team can get to 85% if they're simply prepared to work at it. And the biggest problem is you can't outsource culture. So the amount of leaders... I love that line. You can't outsource (laughs) culture. So when leaders go, I want you to come and do something with our organization or team, whatever it is, and I go, well, are you committed to lead it yourself and they're like well no that's what hr's for culture (laughs) that's why i hired you and i go no you see here's the problem if you want to change the culture of your team it begins with you you know we used to do a lot of work one-to-one with leaders and what we found was we were much more effective in driving performance when we got to work with the whole team because often the leader would say well here's my issues i'm struggling with my cfo and my coo is a nightmare and of course we coach them in that reality yeah Only when we found we went into the organization, actually the real issue was them. 
Really? Most yeah. of the time? Oh, most of the time. Oh, no. <laughs> because <laughs> Probably most, a few leaders shaking in their boots a little bit. Because most of them don't want it to be that way. Yeah. So I'm not judging people. I'm just saying, guys, if your team is not all you wish it could be, or you have a level of frustration with, why won't my people do what I want them to do? The answer is it's much more simple than you actually think it is. And I'll just say to people is you can try to be blue in the face guessing, but you need tools to understand how do I create high support, high challenge. So for someone like you, Ali, you want me to make you better. You don't yeah. mind if I bring pretty significant challenge, but I need to create environments where you can dream, have safe places to ideate what could be, in many ways have independence and the ability to say, Steve, let me go after this hill. Give me the resources I need. Don't micromanage me. Come back and tell me when you need resources. We'll be back with the rest of Allison's interview with Steve Cockrum in just a moment. Listen, if you need to get your entire team on the same page, your message has become unclear. Let's say you've acquired a company or you've chased down different revenue streams and you're in an identity crisis, usually the product of a success you no longer know who you are because you've done so many things to chase so many dollars. And of course it's working, but now you don't know how to describe your business. If that sounds like you and that confusion is being translated into your website, into your marketing collateral, you need a private workshop. That is, you need to bring in a story brand facilitator who over a day and a half can take you through our seven part framework and get everybody on the same page. Not only will your entire staff be using the same language to talk about what you do, that language can then translate into your marketing collateral so your customers actually finally understand why they need your product or service. Our private workshops have changed the lives of so many business leaders and changed the revenue. It's gone up for so many companies. If you want to know more, go to storybrand.com slash private workshops, storybrand.com slash private workshops. You'll fill out a short form online. Our sales rep will get in touch with you and we'll put a date on the calendar Get it started today, storybrand.com slash private workshops. Before we get to the last two, can yep. you walk me through that high support, high challenge sure. kind of matrix that you mentioned? So, you know, you can have to use your conceptual thinking, which for you I know, be I too love difficult. pictures. I wish, we, I wish we could have a picture. <laughs> well, maybe we'll send one. But if okay. you think of a classic matrix with two axes and you imagine up and down, you've got basically high support at the top, low support at the bottom. And then on the other axis, the x-axis, you've got high challenge and high and low challenge. And what we're saying is, if you can create a culture where high support and high challenge are calibrated well, you create what we call a liberating culture of opportunity and empowerment. However, if you are a culture which is very high on challenge but low on support, you create what we call a dominating culture. Mm. And that usually feels like fear of yes. manipulation yep. because people are always fearful of not delivering for you and so, you know, the classic corporate is, well, you're only as good as the last quarter's results. Support is earned through performance. And the leader who is always driving for challenge and results, whenever they're trying to be nice to somebody, they go, well, what do you want? Because you're never nice to me unless you want something. So it always feels slightly manipulative mm. in that process. Make sense? So, And Death. for some people who are very, very high on support but struggle to bring challenge, we call that the protector culture. They like to think it's liberator light, but it's, it's not. It's debilitating. Well, what it does is you're creating an environment where people don't get to be the best they could be. Yeah. Because you almost do everything for them. Because the last thing you want is anyone struggling or feeling like they're not in the best team ever. So you get lots of rah-rah, lots of excitement, but you end up usually with a culture of entitlement. People get used to the leader looking after them and doing everything. Yeah. And he also, interestingly, in that quadrant, you get what we call mistrust because every person who is brilliant on support but struggles to bring challenge specializes in hinting and passive aggression. Oh, really? <laughs> so kind of rather than bring challenge, which often feels like, is this going to break relational harmony? They'll hint at their displeasure. And then over maybe three times, five times, by the time you've done the same thing seven times and ignored my hint, now I'm ready to blow like a volcano. And I go, Ali, I can't believe you've done this again. This is the I'm seventh sorry. time that... And you look at me and go, like, Steve, I'm so sorry. I mean, I had no idea this was a big issue. 
what did you say, seventh time? So you've been coming in and giving me high fives and rah-rah and doing a great job. But for the last three months, you've been getting more and more frustrated with me that I'm not actually doing what you asked me to do. So how do I know now when you're being nice to me that actually there's not something else bubbling? When are you going to blow again? So people go, I'm not sure where I stand with the protector. Yeah. So... You know, protector is not as awful as dominator. Everyone knows we always put dominator as red yeah. because there's always yeah, yeah. blood in the water of dominator yeah. culture because they're usually churning through people. They keep going, I just can't keep the staff anymore, you know. And that's usually because you're basically they're laying their life down and burning out trying to deliver what you've told them they have to deliver. Protector is yellow and warm, but in the end, people don't grow into the all they could be and that's the difference we would say between the protector and the liberator. And bottom left is, you know, low support and low challenge. We call that the abdicator. Mm. That's just a culture of low expectation and apathy. Yeah. Usually the leader is just frazzled. Leave me alone. You get on with your work. I'll get on with mine. You know, I've only got another three years, 11 days and 24 hours till I <laughs> retire. Or they're just, I've tried, nothing will change in this culture. So one of the problems that leaders deal with is, Sometimes we work incredibly hard to be a liberator in our work. So if people are running small businesses, they love their work usually. But what they often do is they leave all of their hard liberator work at work. And so therefore, it's perfectly possible for somebody to be primarily a liberator for their team. But they come home and they're an abdicator for their children. Oh, interesting. I just look, I'm exhausted. I've been working all day. I just want to watch the sport, or I'm going to go and sit in my man cave, whatever it might be. <laughs> or they become a protector to their spouses because they feel guilty that they're at work the whole time. So they kind of just indulge and they'll go, well, you know, we'll go on another holiday, or why don't you spend some more money on the spa or whatever it may be. So the hardest thing for any leader wow. is to be consistently a liberator each day in what we call every circle of influence. So it has to begin in you because what changes in you, almost like a stone being dropped into a pond, ripples out. So the change that I see in me changes the way I lead my family. It changes the way I lead my team, changes the way I lead my organization, and even the way I engage with the community. So much leadership is accidental. Hmm. And what we're usually doing is calling people to be intentional to do some work to really know, well, what am I like to be on the other side of? What's my voice? How do I create the environment where other voices get to play? How do I calibrate support and challenge in a way which is liberating? Because it'll be different for each voice. You don't have to bring much challenge to a nurturer. They challenge themselves the whole time. Yeah. If I was to lead a nurturer the way I'd like to be led, I will get it horribly wrong. So most people look around their team and go, well, you're all quite nice people, really. We're pretty similar. Actually, though they are pretty nice people, they are often diametrically opposed to you in the way they look at the world, their perspectives on work and what they see. So celebrating diversity and difference is actually, I would say, just that self-awareness piece, which is not everyone is like you by a long, long way. (laughs) And that was a big eye-opener for me. Yeah. Okay, so one, we have the nurturer. Two, creative. Three, guardian. Yep. What's number four? Number four is the connector. And these are now into the voices you absolutely will hear in any team. So connectors are almost these larger-than-life characters that bounce around like Tigger. Life is to be enjoyed with as many people as possible. They're full of great ideas. They're usually excited about something. Hmm. You know, one of the great ways of loving a connector is just to ask them, hey, what are you most excited about right now? What should I be exploring? So for connectors, they have this incredible gift to connect with people. So they are amazing at going, here's a brilliant product. How can we message this, communicate this, so that everyone who needs it gets excited about what's going on? They, they kind of create this incredible collaborative team environment. So whereas some people like to win regardless, for the connector, winning as a team, we're all in this together, is actually part of who they are. And though they often get accused of being charismatic salespeople, they find that incredibly hard because they only, what they're doing is they're exploring the world the whole time, trying to find out what's new, what's important, what's working. And when they find it, 
they come back and go, who are all the people who I can bless by connecting them to this incredible new opportunity? So they're incredibly passionate communicators. When they believe in something, it is usually deeply visceral. And they have this incredible capacity to connect with your heart first, your head second, and then usually your wallet um, because they are brilliant. <laughs> out. Yeah. Because they just know how to move people. Mm. And the other thing about the connectors, of course, is they have an incredible ability to maintain a huge number of relationships. There's no half-life of decay in a relationship for a connector. You may have met them five years ago. If you were great friends five years ago, the moment You're they see great you, friends. it's yes. literally nothing has changed. Yes. So, you know, most connectors have at least 200 best, dear or very close <laughs> friends. So that you'll hear them introduce you and it's totally genuine. And I would say, again, in the new world where relationship management is almost a key success in business more than anything else right now, connectors know how to in many ways, connect people, stay connected to people and message your offerings in a way which any other voice doesn't know how to do. If a connector believes in something, you'll often say, do you know, I know the person who can help us or I have a source. Their Rolodex, their network is bigger than anyone else's and they inherently believe everyone's there to help them because they're there to help everyone else. Mm, love that. They don't like, though, by the way, if you want a slightly negative one, yes. most connectors get very defensive. Why? Well, because when they bring an idea to the team table, it's deeply personal. This is not no, just, it's not. I'm just this is, <laughs> this is not just an abstract concept they're bringing. It's a bit like for a connector when they bring their idea. It's the poker game with all the chips on the table. Huh. This is my integrity. This mm. is our relationship. You reject my idea. You're actually rejecting me. Yeah. So the idea for a connector that people can be objective about their idea is really often hard for them to deal with. And so you'll often see this kind of passive-aggressive tendency in connectors, you know, because it feels personal. The reason they bring it in their mind is because you need this. This is the right answer. They're very, very forceful, but in an emotional way in the way they bring their opinions. But you have to learn how to harness the power of a connector because they are your business development function. Yeah, They are basically your internal collaboration and they're always thinking of other people. They usually want to do something amazing with their lives. How do we make a difference for people inside and outside of organizations? Liberate the connectors, create the environment where they feel they can bring their best. It's a huge win. And they only represent, I think it's 11% of the population, but it often sounds like there's more of them. Hmm, love it. Okay. Down to number one, drum roll, please. <laughs> well, number one is number five. I feel like we already gave it away. <laughs> so in their own humble opinion, you know, loving cuddly pioneer comes in. Only 7% of the population speak pioneer as a first voice, but that doesn't seem to worry them. So pioneers are the, the champions of what I would call strategic thinking, critical problem solving, the desire to win, and the desire to align people, systems, and resources to go after the biggest possible influence, the biggest possible win. So they're very competitive people. They're very rational. They're very logical. They're very compelling speakers because it's always been thought through. Pioneers love work. The more complex the problem, the yeah. happier they are. Yeah. To tell a pioneer, I'm not sure you can do this, is almost cruel. Because to prove their competence, it's a bit like the red rag to the bull in kind of the Spanish They're matador. Because it. yeah. it's like, you questioning my competence? <laughs> and so therefore, the hard thing for the pioneer often is to not be at work. For most pioneers, learning how to be truly physically, emotionally and intellectually present with those they love is the hardest thing. So a lot of people who live for families of pioneers, they are so consumed with their work it's almost like there's no time left just to almost, I say, a challenge pioneers to learn to waste time just in relationships with people mm. with no apparent task agenda. I mean, it's so hard for them, I know. But if they get it right, pioneers basically are able to help the team win. If they get it wrong, it's a nightmare. Immature pioneers do more damage inside teams and relationships than any other voice because they're the loudest voice, not just by volume, but often by the force of their argument. And as I said before in the book, you know, we talk about the different weapon systems that each voice brings. The pioneer has a shoulder launch grenade. 
Hmm. Well, if you use that indoors, it never goes well. <laughs> no, and the trouble is everyone remembers when it yeah. happened. Every pioneer kind of knows moments when they've gone, someone's challenged their competency or someone's said wasted time or been frivolous or not worked as many hours as they have. And they turn around and they go, Thum! and across the table, poor you know Mary, the CFO, goes up in flames. Hmm. Everyone remembers it because when you mm. come back next week to the board table, you can still smell <laughs> the, the smoke in the room. You know, sort of facilities has done yeah. a reasonable job, but there's something about <laughs> rotting flesh and oh, scorched carpet, which means everyone kind of goes, when I ask, hey guys, what do you think of this idea? Everyone has a flashback to what happened the last time and they no saw and they go, it's a great idea, Steve. Wow. Or usually they say nothing. Yeah. So for pioneers, silence is not agreement. Wow. Silence usually means there is no psychological safety inside this environment. I don't trust you. Therefore, I'm going to conserve my idea. I don't think it'll work. But, you know, I've got kids at home or, you know, I'm not going to die today because you can't control that, you know, nasty little grenade launcher you keep stashed under the table. Do you think most entrepreneurs and CEOs are pioneers? I wouldn't say most. I would say that they are overrepresented statistically okay. in that process. So there's certainly more than 7% would be leaders of commercial organizations. The fun one is a lot of the work we do is often you'll find the pioneers kind of who are trying to elbow their way to the top of a career because they're usually quite ambitious and they're it, the hardest thing in the world for the 30-year-old pioneers to understand why they're not being promoted further. Mm. And the usual reason is because they've reached the level where their competence is not enough. Everyone knows they're competent, but they're still trying to prove to everybody they're competent when the real issue is, are you prepared to help others win rather than yourself? Wow. So it's like a jaw-dropping moment when I say to most pioneers, do you know how you get ahead? Your peers don't like you right now. They'd rather have anybody but you. They know you're the most competent, but you know, they don't like you. And they look at me and go, what, you know? I said, do you know what you need to do? You need to choose to lose, which is to a pioneer an absolute violation of their very identity. Oh, that makes uh, me so uncomfortable. <laughs> I feel like you just dropped the mic. And, and I go, here's what I want you to do is I want you to help your peers' teams win. The moment your peers believe that you are mature enough to recognize that actually the organization wins more when you use your skills, not just to make sure your team win, but all the teams win. That's the moment when they will be more than happy for you to lead them. Because pioneers inherently believe that you know, probably they ought to be leading things. The thing they don't understand is why sometimes people don't choose them, why sometimes others don't you know, relate to them in the way they would want to. You know, I'm a recovering pioneer, so <laughs> I've apologized to the many people I've grenaded over the years and the people for whom it's been hard to live on the other side of me. But I now try, and I think Voices is part of my redemption to the world almost, of saying, make different mistakes from the ones we've already made. If you happen to be a pioneer, recognize some of this, just you have an opportunity to become way more competent in the way that you create environments for your teams to win. You know, pioneers are not nasty people. I know some of you are sitting and listening going, well, that's not true. <laughs> they just don't understand how they can create environments where people who are different to them can actually bring their best. So yeah. I say to all the pioneers, it's easy. I challenge their competence and go, your team probably functions at 30% less than its true potential, and it's because of you. If you can learn to liberate the 82%, the nurturers, the creatives, and the guardians, the performance of your team will go through the roof, and everyone will want to follow you. So I often say the big challenge is can you become a leader worth following hmm. where everyone chooses to follow you, not because they have to, but because they want to and they feel safe. And if you can then raise up others who can do what you do, you'll actually lead the teams and organizations everyone wants to work for. Recruitment and retention are not an issue when you have mature leaders who actually know how to calibrate support and challenge for those they lead, where they work at truly helping people understand their voice. I mean, we've got everything now from 35,000 employee organizations all the way down to, you know, mom and pop little shops 
using voices as a vocabulary. And I get sent, I don't know how many emails a day of people just saying, do you know, this was so transformational for our team. We wow. cried together. You know, nurturers writing, Steve, I've never felt that I had a place. Hmm. Giant, the organization I lead, we have over 100 giants. I take more pride in the the empowerment and liberation of our nurturers and creatives and guardians than I ever do really in the performance of the connectors and the pioneers because the world is set up for them in the West. Hmm. That's almost so where true. I, as I said, you know, people listening go, guys, this is not a small thing. If you think this is not an issue in your team, then just ask a few people and be honest. I can attest I've had a number of friends who have run organizations and gone through your programs at Giant through your year-long program, and it has changed their companies. It has changed their marriages. I mean, I've literally some who've said it saved their marriage because they realized how poorly they were communicating and they weren't understanding the person on the other side of them. We can never market highly expensive consulting to organizations where we go, do you know, at the end of a period of time, when I ask you where's been the biggest change, I'll almost always guarantee it's in the family circle of influence. Really? I would say 80% of the time, the biggest breakthrough is I realize now why I'm completely disconnected from my kids. It's they're a creative and I'm a pioneer or I don't understand why they behave the way they do. Or like you just said, I married to my opposite hmm. and I don't understand how to connect with their world. So as I said, Helen and I are a case study really of two people who could not be more different. We are diametrically opposed, but where you actually can create synergy the opportunity for us, obviously, you know, to create a place where the, the kids feel the benefit of all the voices is huge. And the same will apply in your teams. But for most leaders, we work incredibly hard at being good at work because that's where we get our affirmation. That's where we get our identity. That's often where we get our financial success. In my experience, the hardest place to be a liberator is at home because hmm. I have no positional power. Hmm. And I, no, you don't, especially with four <laughs> girls in the house. You definitely don't. Well, yeah, there you go. So if you can transform the way leaders feel in your team and actually create a culture where they bring their best and they feel that it's safe to challenge and bring their best contribution every day, it will change everything about the world and the culture you live in. But whether you like it or not, I'm afraid, leaders, it begins with you. The culture will not change unless you do hmm. and you can't build a high-performing team without a self-aware leader it just doesn't work that yeah, way so true one thing i think is so neat about the voices is that it's kind of like holding a mirror up yeah. there's some personality typing systems where it's really confusing to figure out what you are and anyone that i share five voices with it's like yep that's me because it's also you have a dominant voice and two that you really lead with. Isn't that right? So I always ask people, what's their voice order? So for me, I'm a pioneer connector, creative, guardian, nurturer, which means pioneer is my foundational voice. If that's healthy, it shapes how all the others are experienced. I can do connector, but do you know my second voice is nowhere near as adept as a first voice connector. Hmm. And then you work your way down. So most of the time, if I'm doing pioneering and connecting strategically, I love what I do. The real challenge for me is my fifth voice is what I call the conscious incompetence. So nurture, conscious, conscious incompetence. incompetence. I know I'm not very good at being a nurturer. I I'm know, not very good at being a guardian. <laughs> I know I'm not good at kind of just having to care for people selflessly where nothing's going to change. I am in utter awe of the people who are selfless in their service of the poor, the marginalized, those who will never be able to often sometimes offer any back. But I'm thrilled that 43% of the world actually have that as their reason to be. They're never going to push themselves forward in organizations. Yeah. But without their voice, we miss something. And my fourth voice is guardian. I often say, you know, this is in the book, that your fourth voice is actually your unconscious incompetence. It's the one you think you're better at than you actually are. So I would go, well, I ask pretty awkward questions. But actually, when it comes to providing that systematic, disciplined, detailed project management follow through, the realization was that was a real other learning for me. So I would say to people is the goal of the voices is not to become a master at all five. 
You can't. The goal is to reach what I would call conscious competence in each one, where you actually say, I truly understand what that voice brings, and I truly understand how I can create an environment where that voice feels safe mm. to contribute. So know your what you bring at your best. Don't try and be the all-rounder and do everything. Bring your best contribution inside the life of a dynamic team where others actually also feel empowered to bring their best to the table. So that's the kind of the goal of voices is to go know the order with which you engage with the world. Understand that you're not just one, you're all five, but the first voice really defines how the others heard. So sometimes people say, Steve, you really care about people. I mean, I I like that because it's nice, but I care for them as a pioneer, which Mm. means I help people make breakthroughs in their lives. I also tend to be with them for shorter periods of time where I'm looking to create a seismic breakthrough in their thinking, in their self-awareness, rather than be metronomic and see them every day for three years. So if you look at it, I care by creating breakthrough, which is a classic pioneer with trying to be a nurturer, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. I love that. Okay, so if a listener wanted to learn more, dive into this on a deeper level, where could they go? Well, you can buy the book, but fivevoices.com is probably the first port of call. Number There's five? Number five. Number five, voices.com. And then voices.com. There's an assessment there that you can kind of take, and it will give you a little snapshot of voice order. There's obviously a book you can order where we've unpacked quite a bit more. And we've just basically um, released a resource called Transforming Team Communication, which is five workshops, 90 minutes each, that any team... Any team leader who's listening going, gosh, I really probably ought to do something, has been designed so that actually I am your guide. The videos are there, the workbooks are there, the leader resources are there. It's really designed that you can run this with your own team, very, very inexpensive by comparison with bringing people in. Because I think in the end, I would rather any team in the world where the leader is sat listening to this going, do you know, I really wish we could move our team forward if we could create an environment where every voice was heard valued and appreciated if we could see a breakthrough in the relational trust and dynamics of our team i will guarantee as a true pioneer here that if you honestly go through all five of those 90 minute workshops it will transform the way your team functions and i will happily say to everybody if you honestly go through all five you haven't had tears and you haven't (laughs) had breakthrough and you haven't had more ahas and laughs than you've ever had before as a team, I will happily refund every penny of what it costs to buy. So fivevoices.com is where you can find that as well. Those are the most practical resources, I think, Ali, that um, I have. And there's a podcast. So Jeremy, my partner in crime, Jeremy and I basically developed a lot of the stuff. Jeremy's the best writer. I hate writing. He's amazing at it. But basically, we run a podcast called The Liberator Podcast. And obviously, it talks about a lot more of the things we've talked about here how do you be a leader worth following? Very practical, very just Englishman and an American usually poking fun at each other and having a bit of laugh on the way. So there we go. So As an English person, I struggle to sell anything. But I think I did quite well. <laughs> you did fabulous, yes. <laughs> I'm learning from my, my you American are, cousins. You are. You're hanging out with the Americans. And I'll just say you have made a profound impact in my life and in the lives of so many friends of mine who've gone through your program. So just thank you for your service to so many leaders out there. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ellie. Allie, terrific job. Well That's done. Fascinating. That's fascinating. My question is real quick. So you said that he really influenced the way that you kind of decided to start the company. What's one specific thing you did differently after understanding these types of voices? Well, I think a big part of it was realizing where my strengths are. So I'm a creative pioneer, which means I need two things. I need constant creative outlets, which is like me writing the book or dreaming up a company idea. Yeah. Or interviewing people on or the building. Interviewing people. We're it thankful gives, for that. Yes, it gives me such joy. No, but then also the pioneer is like I, this blazing new trails, the need to lead, doing things that are new. But then I've also realized that I need to surround myself with people who are guardians and nurturers. Mm-hmm. So you'll love this. My first hire was my CFO, who is a guardian, guardian. nurturer. <laughs> so even though that frustrated you, you realized, hey, that's, that's a complete team. Yeah. And actually, yeah. those are the strengths that are going to make me better That where I'm super weak. And you need that in order to build an effective company. And so I think it's such a healthy way to be thinking about 
teams hiring yeah you know and even understanding how we communicate with one another yeah fantastic awesome. life changing not just in career but in our personal lives as well exactly really good stuff all right ali welcome to the team thanks guys. we're looking Yay. for a, a long and great future next week you guys one of my favorite kind of tv personalities there's only a couple shows that betsy and i we like watching television, but Real there's couple that, that we actually, yeah, we actually, <laughs> actually agree on. Actually, I have, I have sat and watched The Bachelor with Don That's and right. before. <laughs> yeah. and Don the only really episode I've it. ever actually... You were really into it. I have, nothing I true. have documented nothing evidence. True about what <laughs> I do have evidence. <laughs> <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> anyway, the show is Shark Tank. Yes. And a lot of people watch it. And one of my favorite, I think the voice of kind of reason and humility on the show, nothing against the other guys. They're great guys. But is Damon John. John. Yeah, completely. He just, he's always the guy who, like, he's the turn the other cheek guy, but not in a weak way. Like, when they, they come after him and insult him, yeah. he's just like, that's stupid. And he keeps going. Yeah, so right? wise. He actually is. There's something wise about Damon. He is our guest next week on the podcast. Amazing. And he blew me away. You don't want to miss next week's podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe to the Building a Story Brand podcast on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. But here's a little clip of my conversation with Damon John. For some reason, Hollis, Queens, I don't know if there's something in the water there, but, you know, the people that come from Hollis, Queens are LL Cool J, Run DMC, Salt and Pepper, Lost Boys, uh, Russell Simmons, uh, Tribe Called Quest, all in my age group, and they all are from the same square two miles in Hollis, Queens. So what happened was I was looking at them and looking at the drug dealers and saying, well, the drug dealers are dead or in jail. These people are actually making money, enjoying what they're doing in life, and they have a great following. I can't rap, sing, dance, or produce. What can I do within that? system. And it was only after my best friends were all dead or in jail that I, I decided to just basically get a job at Red Lobster. I said, I'm not cool enough to rap and I'm not uh, tough enough to sell drugs. So I'm going to go and be a waiter. I didn't really know who to aspire to. So when I sat back and I said, I just want to have a normal life, then I started to be creative and I started to think about the things I want to do. And a passion came to me, which was maybe I can't rap, sing a dance, but maybe I can dress the community because I love this community of hip hop. So that's next week. So, Don, what I want to know is, did you pitch him on story? I did. Yes. I did. Oh, you no. didn't. No, mainly because I, you know, there's this whole thing of like when you have a partner, it just gets very complicated. Yeah. And so, actually, every time I watch the show, that's the question I'm always asking too. How would I pitch it? And then, would you actually want a partner? Which I think a ton of people listening to this podcast actually are in that same boat. They're like. Would I want a part? And you know about venture capital. Yeah. It's a mixed bag. It totally is. So not that I would have because it wasn't the appropriate moment, but I do ask myself that when I'm watching Shark Tank. And then, you know, how much money would we want in order lots, to do something? Lots. Like if somebody lots. gave you $20 million to spend on StoryBrand, what would you do with it? Like I would probably... 10% more in marketing. This is a longer conversation. But then you just go... <laughs> you're like, you're really going into is it. Is that right? worth... Yeah, is that worth like a, yeah, but is it worth like a board of directors yeah. and meetings? Don's going to think about it. Stay tuned yeah. to Shark Tank. <laughs> I just want... I just say this. If any of the Shark Tank judges are listening, and I'm sure they all are, yeah. make me an offer. <laughs> Talk to me. Have your assistant. Not call my you assistant. And you can win me over with simply putting in a fireman's pole from our top story to our second story. Like, that's what I would spend the money on. That's it's what like, you would spend It's like a slide or a fireman's pole so I can go from upstairs down really quick. What did you do with the 20 million? Swag! Swag. <laughs> you have visors with green little uh, see-through things. It's great. Anyway, didn't do it, but if you guys do get a call from any of the judges, please let me know. I can't wait. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>